Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And you've heard from Edie Hand before on our show, and she's told some remarkable stories. And you can hear those stories on our website, Today, you're going to hear a little bit about Edie's own life story. We love telling you stories of family, stories of mothers, and the importance they play in their children's lives for better and for worse. Here's Edie with her own story. I recall a simpler time in my life in Burnout, Alabama. It was so small that We used to laugh and say, we know burnouts burnt plum out. I remember going out back of the house and I would be making mud pies. My brothers would come up and I'll never forget how they said, so what are you cooking today, Edie? Or they called me Edith. And I said, I'm making a new mud pie. You want to try it? I remember they sat down on the little pieces of wood on the rocks, and they put that mud in their mouth. They got sick from eating that dirt and running to the house to tell mother that I'd fed them mud pies. It wasn't funny to my mother, but it was, it was funny to me. It was those little things. I remember going to the barn with the boys, and we saddle up our horses. We had two Shetland ponies and a quarter horse. It was a, a wonderful place to grow up. There was 40 acres of rolling hills. We had the garden with different chores to do. Uh, the boys did more in the garden. I was more helping mother with laundry. My mother would always have us baked when we got off a school bus, I remember, was baked sweet potatoes and chocolate doodad cookies. She would want to hear about what we had done in school for the day. I remember we had a cold glass of milk with that. That was, it's just remembering home. That was home to me. And we all need some place we can call home, either physically or a place we can go back to in our mind. And that is a place for me. And and I think the barn, I used to think, this is the place. You know, it was just simpler times, but it was the place of the most joy, I think, of feeling free and you could be anything you want to be. But the barn just spoke to me in a way of, I like the openness, I like the lofts, and you could dream. It was a place to dream. You could look out through the holes, see the sky, or you could jump out of the barn and be in a pile of sawdust or hay and we played kick the can relay runs that we would see how fast we were you know go from one tree to the next it was just nothing big but those simple games that I I cherish the most that I would call this is the place I think that place is where I found me my mother Sue was a homemaker when I was young She just lived for her children. She loved to 
dressed me up beautifully. She, I was her baby doll. And, of course, I was her first child. And the boy's always so handsome. Now, she didn't come to the barn and do the things with us, but my grandmother, Alice, did. She, she was a tomboy, my grandmother was. She, she, could, she could ride, she could milk cows, she could do anything. But my mother was the one that always had everything just right in the home, was always dressed perfect. My mother taught me about being proper, good manners. It was always important to be a lady. So I grew up with a lot of old school manners with her. She was always very proud of my accomplishments in life. I didn't get to be as close to her as I wanted to be. She was closer to the boys. I think my mother was closer to the boys because they were more needy. And she would say, you're strong. You're like mama. You're like Alice. You don't really need anybody. You you just get out there and do it. But what I wish my mother had noticed was that I did neither. So I always just was strong. Everybody said it, so I must be strong. I think it made me a loner. It was a good quality, but I don't like being alone. My grandmother, Alice, she said, please always love your mother. She loves you dearly. She just doesn't know how to connect to you. Your mother loves you. And sometimes there's just no real explanation other than just the comment of it. Because what people don't realize, I think, is is that it is important to take the time to explain to someone and talk to them. Don't hide behind feelings. I think I suppressed mine through the years to be almost 70 years old and to see that the little girl in me still wants to go to the place. Since the barn is gone, my grandmother's gone, when most of my family is gone, There is no place that I feel quite at home anymore, but I'm looking for it. I'm going to find another place because my grandmother said I could do hard things, and I will, and I do. And great job on the production by Robbie, and thanks for just a, a beautiful piece of storytelling from Edie Hand. In that barn, she said, it spoke to me. I like the openness, the lofts. You could dream. It was a place to dream. And at 70 years old, she's looking for that place. She suppressed her feelings. And she was the strong one, and it made her a loner. And everyone's got a kid like that in the family, right? Everybody thinks, oh, that that kid's okay. We'll take care of the the more needy one. Edie Hand's story, here on Our American Story.
And we continue here with our American stories. It might seem like an April Fool's joke. The Navy commissioned its newest destroyer on April 1st, a few years ago, and they named it after a man who deliberately crash-landed a perfectly good aircraft behind enemy lines. But the man who became the first American serviceman in the Korean War to receive the Medal of Honor and the man who lent his name to the USS Thomas Hudner had a darn good reason, perhaps the best of reasons. Here's Greg Hengler. It was December 4, 1950, and 26-year-old Navy Lieutenant Thomas Hudner was flying an armed reconnaissance mission over the Chosen Reservoir in North Korea. The battle raging pitted nearly 100,000 Chinese troops against 15,000 United States Marines and soldiers. Cut off and surrounded, the Americans on the ground depended on the support of combat pilots like Hudner and his wingman, 24-year-old naval officer, Jesse Leroy Brown. Brown, a seasoned pilot in the Navy's first black aviator, was the son of a sharecropper and grew up in a Hattiesburg, Mississippi shack with no electricity. Hudner, who is white, was born in an affluent New England family. Yet the two men forged a deep bond at a time when the military and the nation was deeply divided on racial lines. Theirs was an incredible friendship that would be brutally tested that day. Here's Lieutenant Thomas Hudner with the story. Near the end of November 1950, we had soldiers and Marines on the ground who were driving up in the vicinity of the Chosen Reservoir, headed on up towards the Yellow River, which is the dividing line between Manchuria and North Korea. Chinese were pouring across the Yellow River in great numbers and were attacking our troops and surrounding them, and they needed help desperately. We were flying above the mountains. The map showed the terrain in this area would be as high as 6,000 feet. The flight was going on with um, uh, nothing unusual when Jesse called out that he's losing power, couldn't maintain altitude, and he thought he's going to have to crash land his airplane. When the plane hit the ground, it was bent at the cockpit at about a 30-degree angle, and the engine was torn off the airplane. Then we saw that the canopy of the aircraft had opened. Jesse had opened the canopy of the airplane and waved to us to let us know that he had survived, but he didn't get out of the airplane. And then we saw that smoke was coming out from under the cowling of the airplane, indicating there was some sort of fire. Dick Savoli came back on our frequency and said that a helicopter was on the way up, but it might be half an hour before it could get up there. And when I realized that Jesse's airplane may burst into flame before it could get there, I made a decision to uh, make a, a wheels-up landing, crash close enough to his airplane, and pull him out of the cockpit and wait for the helicopter to come. The snow was about a foot and a half deep, and I, when I got over to Jesse's airplane, I could see that he was, uh, the reason he hadn't gotten out of the aircraft was because as the fuselage had buckled, it had pinned his knee in the plane. And on the Corsair, there isn't a horizontal surface in the whole airplane. The wings come down from the fuselage and then go up about six feet out from the fuselage. 
So getting up to look into the cockpit was difficult. I had to hold on with one hand just to hold on to the cockpit. I scooped up a handful of snow and threw it up under the cowling trying to... I knew I wouldn't put the fire out if there was a fire, but at least to um, dampen anything that was in there. And after about half an hour of this, a helicopter arrived on the scene. The pilot came over to help. His name was Charlie Ward, a Marine First Lieutenant. <clears throat> but Charlie and I worked, <clears throat> worked for about 15 or 20 minutes, seeing that there was absolutely nothing we could do. <clears throat> the fire extinguisher, after a few squirts under the cowling, did no good whatsoever and the axe just bounced off the fuselage. It did no good at all. So then Charlie called me aside and he said that those helicopters were not equipped for flying at night and he couldn't stay, he had to go. And he gave me the choice of uh, staying with Jesse or going with him. It would have been suicide to have stayed Jesse had been wavering in and out of consciousness. I wasn't sure when he was conscious and when he wasn't. The temperature was at least around zero and went as low as 35 degrees below zero at night. And uh, I've, I made the decision to go with Charlie. I told Jesse we were going back to uh, get equipment. We couldn't, couldn't get him out of the airplane as it was. And I don't know if he, if, if he heard me, I don't know if he was alive at the time. When I got back out to the ship, the captain called me the bridge right away, and he had the helicopter ready, the ship's flight surgeon, and he had a number of aircraft. He was going to take that carrier in as close to offshore as he possibly could, send the flight surgeon and the helicopter to the site of the wreckage, cut Jesse's body out of the airplane and bring him back to the ship. And I told him it was a very humane but only a symbolic gesture because it was much, much too dangerous to do so. So there's a flight of uh, Corsairs went in with napalm with other aircraft flying escort and support for them. And they found our two airplanes and dropped napalm. And they destroyed his airplane and my airplane. So Jesse died a warrior's death in a funeral pyre. I think that in retrospect, it was almost a natural thing for guys, um, guys in combat to do for shipmates and comrades. Had I been on the ground, I think I would have had enough faith in my shipmates for somebody to do something. And I felt that, yes, there was a chance that I wouldn't, but to save Jesse's life was worth it. And I do feel very strongly about our doing this for freedom, but you know, the bottom line is that freedom doesn't mean nearly as much as spending a lot of time with these guys, especially under times of stress and everything. Guys will do anything for one another. Looking back ever since I got the medal and, and seeing some of those people who are no longer with us, what they did, maybe there are 10 times as many people who should have gotten the medal. Maybe it's only twice as much, I don't know. But by God, we're not the only people that earned it. All these guys have stories. The music may be different, but it's all the same story. On April 13, 1951, Hudner became the first American serviceman in the Korean War to receive the Medal of Honor. Ann Hudner, 
along with his shipmates, took up a collection for Jesse's daughter, who was two at the time. The crew raised the equivalent of $24,000 today for her college fund. Seven months following his commissioning ceremony on November 13, 2017, Thomas Hudner died at 93 years of age. More than half a century after President Harry S. Truman integrated the military in 1948, Hudner and Brown's legacy is evident. Hudner and Brown biographer Adam Makos writes, These two men, Jesse was a pioneer and Tom was a hero, but together they helped pave the way for the military we have today. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And thanks to Greg Hengler for telling that story. And what a story indeed. And what a great racial story. A white man laying down his life for his fellow airmen and doing it without reservation. And we're talking about Medal of Honor recipient, Navy Lieutenant Thomas Hudner, and Naval Officer Jesse Leroy Brown, his pal. In the end, his friend. And Jesse was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And we don't broadcast far. We're up here in Oxford, Mississippi, not too far south of Memphis. And he grew up at a time, well, where black people in the south were treated poorly, and in the, in the north, too. Racism is a deep fact of life, but not for these two men. And the military, time and again, leads so often in the culture, bringing people together in common cause. And that's the Forgotten War, many people call the Korean War the Forgotten War. Because so little is spoken about that war. It's World War II, it's Vietnam, it's Iraq. But we tell the stories of all the wars and all of our fallen men and the survivors too. Because they're important stories here on Our American Stories. And we're looking for you to share your hero stories, soldiers' stories, on this show, past and present. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org always. We have time for these stories. Navy Lieutenant Thomas Hudner's story. In a way, his pal Jesse Leroy Brown's story too. And a great American story about race and love. Here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories. And our next story, well, it's about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. It all went down in the city of Benton Harbor, Michigan, in 2006. Andrew Collins was a narcotics officer. Jamel McGee was the brand new father of a beautiful baby boy. Let's go to what we'll call a split screen of these two men on how that day went down starting with Jamel. February 8th, 2006 was the day that forever changed my life. February 8th, 2006, really just another day for me. All I wanted to do was go to the store and get some milk for my son. All I wanted on that day was another conviction. 
So I caught a ride from some guys that I knew that probably would be up to no good. I had caught a guy with some crack. He knew a guy with some more crack, so we made a phone call. So we get to the store, and this guy asked me to use the phone. At the time, I didn't think anything of it, so I gave him my phone. So I get to the store, and I see the vehicle, just like I was told. One guy in the vehicle, and another guy comes out of the store. I'm not sure if he has something to do with it, but I'm going to make sure he has something to do with it. So I'm coming out the store, and this guy's approaching me, talking about he's a cop. Where's the dope? I'm like, what dope? I don't have any dope. I ain't got no dope. It ain't my dope. How many times have I heard this before? That's what everybody says. So I had him lock him up. How could I be going to jail for some drugs that isn't mine? How is this possible? Trial? He's going to take it to trial the way that I wrote that report? He's going to take it to trial? Oh, what a waste of my time. Well, I wasn't about to plead guilty to something that I know I didn't do. So I told my story, and I got my conviction. And Jamel McGee was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. Wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, and wrongly imprisoned, Jamel was sentenced to federal prison, as we just heard, for 10 years for dealing drugs, a crime he didn't commit. Here's Jamel on what he was feeling after he heard the prison doors close behind him. Um, I felt like I had lost everything. There was nothing else that mattered at this point. So my attitude was, I don't care. So that was my goal for whenever I got home, was to find him and hurt him. Jamel continued to battle with his demons. So <clears throat> after battling with these, these thoughts, I'm getting headaches trying to block it out, okay? Because I don't want to hear it. I'm trying to put something else in my head to get this thought out of my head. And I quickly realized that every situation, I had a choice. Before it even happened, I had a choice. But I chose the more convenient, easy way every time, which led me to foster care, juvenile, the links, the boys' homes, the prisons, the jails. My decisions led me there. So <clears throat> I'm like, you know what, God, it's your way. I'm tired of being in my way. I'm tired of this. My way hasn't worked all these years. So I need something different. I got a son. I want to see him. I want to be able to raise him. I want to be a part of his life. So I got to do something different with mine. So I get back to my cell, and I prayed before I went to sleep. And I was like, you know what, God? I want to wake up tomorrow as if I'm at home. So I want to live every day after this as if I'm at home. So I got up that morning, and my first thing to do was speak to somebody which was very hard for me to do. And I came out and I was just like, all right, hey. First person I saw, hey, how you doing? They looking at me like, this dude is crazy, who is this? <laughs> like, but I didn't care at that point what nobody thought. Cause I said, I was gonna go through with this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna adapt this change into my life. I'm gonna do something different. Here's Jamel on what happened shortly after his heart changed. I go to work this one morning and the people were calling me as soon as I got to work. So I go to the council office and he was like, the fax machine beeped and he handed me the paper and it was a letter from the judge saying my conviction was overturned and I had to leave the premises immediately. 
So if y'all didn't catch that, we can try all we want to. It just don't work that way. It just won't work. God has the say-so. He has the ultimate plan. He did that. He, me letting my, that anger, that frustration go, God opened the door for me to go. Jamel served four years of his 10-year sentence. But why the early release? Well, here's Andrew Collins, that narcotics officer we heard from earlier, who falsified the evidence that led to Jamel's imprisonment. He shares with us what happened to him exactly one year before Jamel was set free. So February of 2008, I get caught with crack, heroin, and marijuana in my office. And in one day, my life crumbled. All the money that I was making, legally and and illegally, gone. Friends that I had built, friends who I thought would be there for a lifetime. Nobody knows a police officer like a police officer. Y'all are my boys, gone. Because they were worried about their careers. Rightly so. My family, having to see my wife's face when I was trying to explain to her that I just lost my job. And in a day, it was gone. So I went on a three-day journey. Day one got caught. Day two thought about suicide. There's no way I can get out of this. Day three, went and saw a pastor. Because on day two, my wife came home from work and saw that I was depressed and said, you need to go talk to that pastor that you've been going to. So I called that pastor up and I said, I got to talk to you. He said, yeah, you do. I've seen the news. So I sit down with him and I tell him, I, I, I confessed everything. It felt so good to get it out of me, to finally admit what I had done wrong. And he listened patiently and he said, boy, you're in trouble. (laughs) I remember thinking, like, you, sir, are a terrible counselor. (laughs) Like, I know I'm in trouble. What do I do now? And he said, where are you at with Jesus? So we knelt down there in his office, and he prayed because I felt like if I talked to God, he'd strike me dead right there. I still couldn't wrap my mind around grace. We said amen. I was bawling, and I said, what do I do next, man? I'm a man. There's like a list. There's got to be a list of things I can do. Give me a listen. I'll check off the boxes. He said, read your Bible. That's it. Get to know your Lord. I was like, oh, I don't know if you ever read that thing, Pastor, but it's kind, of, it's kind of boring. He's like, no, man, God did something in you today. He gave me a, a Bible that was a little easier to read for me from what I grew up in, and I started reading. I was blown away at all the little bombs that were going off in my soul about Jesus dealing with people that were just as jacked up or even worse than me. And the longer I was away from police work, the less I felt bad I got caught and the more I felt bad for what I had done. So I went to the FBI and I said, look, I want to right my wrongs. So I sat down, they put a a stack of uh, reports in front of me and they said, we need you to look through all these reports and we need need you to tell us which ones are bad. And I said, honestly, out of these 200 cases, it'd be easier to highlight the ones that are good. My corruption ran deep. And I started working it out one case at a time, one case at a time, one case at a time. And one of those cases was Jamel McGee. I opened it up and I said, that's a bad case. It's a bad case. It's a bad case. And this is a heck of a story. I couldn't wrap my mind around grace, this detective said. Read your Bible, get to know your Lord, his pastor said. Both of these men on a spiritual journey, both born in very different circumstances, one side of the law and the other, And when we come back, more of this remarkable story about grace, about love, about God, and so much more. A crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. 
Jamel's story, Andrew's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We return to our story about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. And when we left off, Andrew Collins had come clean, given his life to Christ, and he lived happily ever after, right? Well, not exactly. January 09, Officer Collins pled guilty and got a three-year prison sentence. And in February of 09, Jamel was set free. A switch. But the story does not stop there. 2010, August, I get out. So I reach out to a pastor of a local church up there, and he says, we're having this thing in August of 11 called Hoops, Hip Hop, and Hot Dogs, H3. So I said, I want to be a part of that. So I'm standing in Broadway Park, like, okay, where are the people that I need to be reconciled with? Bring them, Lord. Bring them, Lord. Benton Harbor is a small town, by the way, maybe a little too small. Here's Jamel on what happened that day. In August 2011. I got out. Um, I got to meet my son for the first time. Um, and he wanted to go to this park. It was, he's seen a lot of people standing out there. So I'm like, all right, come on, let's go. Walking down the sidewalk, I'm like, I thought I seen Andrew in, up under the pavilion. I'm like, no, that can't be him. Not in Broadway Park. And he turned around, and I'm like, yeah, that's him. In my mind, the first thing that popped up was, get him, get him. Now he's here, he's in front of you. All that I was feeling in the prison was back on my shoulders. So I go over there, beeline, stuck out my hands. I said, hey, you remember me? And he said, yeah, and when he said it, I squeezed him. And in my mind was, Two things, it was myself again telling me to hit him, hit him. What are you waiting on? You're taking too long, hit him. Then God was like, hey, (laughs) God was like, hey, I got this. Get out of my way. I got this. Step out of my way. Let me avenge this for you. I got this. I can do far more than you ever can. So I'm like, hmm, hit him. <laughs> hit him. And my son was right there, and I was just like, just explain to my son why I missed out on these years of his life, because I'm having a hard time doing it. And I, I let him go, and I walked away. 
And each step I walked away, I felt lighter, I felt better. The closer I got to the curve, I began to think, man, that's over with. I'm gonna leave that to God where it was supposed to be. I can't do nothing about it anyway. Forget it, I'll never see him again anyway. What are the chances that they never saw each other again? What a scene, by the way, in a movie, huh? And by the way, as the mainstream media covered this incredible story, they left God out of it. And by the way, this is one of the things we will talk about on this show. You don't have to be a Christian to love the show, and you can be an atheist and love the show. But messing with who people are by removing parts of their lives is just despicable. And the God story here is central to the story. Andrew Collins picks up the story by telling us how he picked up his own life after the time he spent in prison. So I start working for this place called the Mosaic CCDA, Christian Community Development Association. Cafe Mosaic, if you all have ever been there, downtown Benton Harbor, great place to go get a coffee. So I'm working there as the cafe manager. There's another part of the program called Jobs for Life where people from the community, maybe they've got felonies on their record, maybe they've never had a job before, and they need a little bit of hand up. They don't need a hand out, they need a hand up because they want to do something with their life. They go through Jobs for Life, they graduate Jobs for Life, and then they either get absorbed into one of our social enterprises or they went out and got jobs with uh, a community people that we had made uh, contact with. Everybody in Jobs for Life, every student, ended up with a mentor. Anybody putting two and two together yet? One day, Miss Princella comes down because she runs Josh for Life. She says, hey, there's this guy in my class called Zuki. Do you know Zuki? I want to introduce you guys to my, my friend Zuki. Uh, uh, my nickname. I said, no, I know the street name. I've heard it, but I don't think I know him personally. Don't think we ever met. Would you be his mentor? God has laid it on my heart that you should be his mentor. <laughs> God's funny, right? <laughs> So I said, you know my story, Miss P. You know what I've done in this city. I don't know if I've affected his family. Why don't you go ask him uh, what he thinks about it? So Jamel, in two minutes or less, what did that conversation sound like? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> it was like um, she came over and was, I was sitting in class. Everybody had a mentor. And she was like, yeah, we finally got your mentor. She was like, yeah, God has laid it on my heart for you two guys to be mentor, mentee. And um, I don't know if you guys had any history together, but... Um, yeah, I think you guys should be mentoring. I'm like, okay, get on with it. Who is it? And she's like, Andrew Collins. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no way. There's no way I'm doing that. Jamel wasn't finished. She was like, okay, fine. We'll get you somebody else. And I'm like, wait a minute, Miss P. That was my decision. Let me pray on that real fast. Because I don't want no more of my decisions to affect my life. This was my decision. So I wanted to be God's decision. So I prayed and I opened my eyes and there was a book on my desk and there was two figures on a um, mountain that was written in words and it was one pulling the other one up. I was like, all right, God, you got it. It's evident. This is the path you want me to take. I'm going to take it. All right, God, you got it. And by the way, this is why so many of us have prayer lives. And it's not just Christians, it's Jews, it's Muslims. Because sometimes we get in the way of the right decision. Our own egos, our own pride. Men particularly, women too, pride. The thing that gets in the way almost all the time. And that's what was getting in the way for Jamel. And by the way, when he said, that was my decision, let me pray on that real fast. 
how you could have left that out of this story, which, by the way, look up this story all over the media, CBS, ABC, you name it. It was covered. And this was left out, this prayer. God, I don't know how you do that. Again, I just don't know how you do that with good conscience. So these two guys, well, they're going to be together. Here's Andrew on meeting the guy who he would be mentoring, a guy who had only been referred to as Zookie. So we sit down and I say, hey, uh, I used to be a police officer in the city of Benton Harbor. I did some awful things. If I've ever harmed you or your family, can you let me know? I'd like to apologize for it. And he's smiling at me the whole time. I'm like, what is this dude smiling at This ain't funny. I'm trying to be serious. And I said, so once I got done with my little spiel, I said, look, man, what's so funny? And he just shook his head. He said, man, we already had this talk. I said, we did. He said, yeah, Broadway Park. And I was instantly flashed back to that moment in the park. And I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> And I just went to apologize and do, I am so sorry. I felt like God gave me a second chance. I'm so sorry. He said, I know. And he was like offended. I know. I said, dude, there's got to be something I can do. He's like, no, 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 it's over. It's over. You were sorry then and I trusted that. And I know you are now. You don't have to say it anymore. It's forgiven. It's done. I was like, dude, can we, can we do this mentor thing? He said, I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. I said, man, this is this is blowing my mind, dude. Like four minutes ago, I'm making chocolate chip cookies. Can, can, and now this, like this is, this, can we pray? <laughs> He's like, let's pray. So we, we, we bowed our heads right there and we prayed that God would bless this friendship, that God would make uh, basically beauty for ashes. And we prayed that. And he got up, we said amen. He got up and walked out because he had an appointment to get to and I went in the back and cried like a child because I felt forgiven. <laughs> and then I was, we were meeting every week and I was like, yo, bro, we, we need an employee in the cafe and you need a job. Uh, are you, do you need a job? He's like, yeah, I need a job. You know I need a job. I said, well, how about this? Because what if, what if I hire you, or what if we hire you, and, and you be, and are you a good worker? Because if I've got to write you up, things are already tense enough, you know? Like, ah. <laughs> and he did that. He just smiled at me. This dude smiled. It's like, it breaks down all board. He's like, no, man, no, I got you, I got you. And he started working. He was the best worker I had ever seen. I worked so hard. I never see somebody work so hard in that cafe. So every day I say, thank you, Jamel. Thank you so much for, for putting your all into this. And this is amazing. Thank you. Do you want to hit me? <laughs> He'd be like, what? I'd be like, I just want to check. I just want to make sure. Because I don't want to be the cash register someday and then just get your big old. I want to make sure I know it's coming if it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, no, bro, no. We're good. And it's so real. It's so real. It's so authentic. What a beautiful story about forgiveness, brokenness, and true reconciliation by two guys who should be hardened, bitter enemies. Jamel wrote the book about his story entitled Convicted, A Crooked Cop, An Innocent Man, and An Unlikely Journey of Forgiveness and Friendship. And that he was able to say to this guy, it's over, it's done. Think about that in your own lives. If you could say those words to bitterness you'd held on to. And again, this is the power of God in people's lives. I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. Let's make beauty from ashes. Well, let's all make beauty from ashes. If this story can teach us one thing, it's possible. And so we're so happy to have brought you Andrew's story, Jamel's story, this story of a little Benton Harbor, Michigan. It could be happening all over this country, folks. And if the media would only report the source of so much of this reconciliation... Not the fake reconciliation they talk about in the news. This is the real thing. 
And something tells me God's behind a lot of it. Their stories here on Our American Stories. Do you want to hear the, the guitar just to make sure everything's cool? One real fast start. Right, Letter A. That did it. Right. Pretty sound, yeah. That's the whole trick of the record. This is dedicated to one I love. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. And all show long, we're celebrating... Father's Day, and you're about to hear the story of a guitarist extraordinaire, Tommy Tedesco, a member of a group of the most sought-after musicians in the world, dubbed the Wrecking Crew. Tommy played on thousands of recordings from the 1960s to 80s, many of them top 20 hits you know. Yet, he never earned the household name status he deserved. He was, as one critic said, the most famous guitarist you've never heard of. Tommy's son, filmmaker Denny Tedesco, sought to fix this and made the movie The Wrecking Crew, a terrific documentary about his father and the other musicians who made up this remarkable band. Let's begin with Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys' 1965 Pet Sound Studio recording session, followed by Denny Tedesco with the rest of this remarkable story, a great Tribute by a son to a father. Here we go. This will be what? Take two. In the 1960s, there were a group of studio musicians in Los Angeles that became known as the Wrecking Crew. Now, I call them the melting pot of America's pop music. Italians, Jews, Irish, black, classically trained jazz musicians, country musicians, hillbilly, and one woman. Now, together for a few years in the mid-1960s, they ruled the Billboard charts with their recordings. They were a hidden secret among music buyers and listeners, but they were revered by artists, producers, and engineers. 
If a pop artist recorded in L.A. in the 1960s, most likely many of these, if not all these studio musicians, were involved in the recording. They recorded with the Beach Boys, Elvis, Fit Dimension, The Birds, Janet Dean, Mamas and Papas, The Monkees, Frank and Nancy Sinatra, Sam Cooke, The Ronettes, Righteous Brothers, and so many more. Why am I telling you this story? Well, one of those Italian guitar players, Tommy Tedesco, was my father. My name is Denny Tedesco. Some of the other voices you will hear comes from the documentary The Wrecking Crew. But before I tell you more about my father and his friends, you need to know what came before to lead up to their success. In the 1950s and early 60s, the music scene was changing and rock and roll couldn't be ignored. One of the first changes in the record world was in the 1950s. There was a transition from the 78 RPM record format to the 45 RPM, which really represented the pop recording. In 1958, the 45 disc replaced the 78 completely. The first time you'll hear the term Top 40 is in 1960. Here, producer Snuff Garrett tell the story. Todd Storer is a day drinker, and he would sit in this local bar and sit there all day and drink. One day, after a year or so, he thought he was sitting there thinking about it. How many records are on that jukebox? Because everybody plays the same five or six records all the time. He went over and looked, and there was 100 records on the jukebox, and he thought, out of the 100 records, why do they keep playing those five or six all the time, you know? And they figured out that and said, well, maybe people just want to hear the hits. They don't want to hear this or that or whatever. Uh, they they want to hear the same songs over and over. So he and Gordon McClendon talked on the phone and invented Top 40 Radio. With radio featuring top hit singles, there was a demand for product and record companies needed to supply that demand. Now you have to realize the main commercial pop recordings were coming out of New York, Nashville, Detroit, London in the late 50s and early 60s. L.A. had a very established recording business, but it was really overshadowed by the film business. Here is producer Lou Adler to tell you more. I mean, they, they didn't recognize what was happening in L.A. music, the film people. It was much later that uh, they started to even think about this would be a good soundtrack to have. You know, we can not only have a film that has good grosses, we can make money on a soundtrack. I think they didn't respect the music business for a very long time, even when it was successful in L.A. The recording studio musicians of the time were keeping busy, but not so much by the pop scene. Movie and television soundtracks kept many employed, and the West Coast jazz scene became to be known as the cool sound. But things started to change when artists like Sam Cooke, Janet Dean, the Beach Boys, and Phil Spector started to have hits in the early 1960s. Labels started to see the tide turn, so they started signing new acts. Like any business, you want to make sure you don't overextend on a budget and put the odds of success in your favor. And the music business at the time did exactly that. Many of the artists in the early 1960s were singers, so the labels would hire producers who turned around and hired session musicians to record the music. So in comes a generation of musicians that were hungry to break into the studio scene. As I said earlier, they came from all kinds of backgrounds. My father came from Niagara Falls, New York, with my mom and older brother in 1953. Here's a clip of my mother telling this story. We went to the prom and Ralph Martiri was playing the dance and found out that their guitar player was leaving that night and he tried out, auditioned, and he was hired right then and there. It was on a Friday night and a Saturday night he left for New York City.
the truth. Okay, you gotta let go. <laughs> Martiri was going to get a guitar singer so that he could only pay for one guy. He decided he, he knew there was nothing there in Niagara Falls for him. He wanted to go California to play. And you're listening to Denny Tedesco tell the story of his father, Tommy Tedesco. We continue with this remarkable story and a remarkable tribute by a son to a father. Tommy Tedesco's story continues. We're going to go out with one of his most famous tracks, The Wrecking Crew's most famous tracks, The Righteous Brothers. You've lost that love and feeling. we continue with our American stories in our special Father's Day show and what a father tribute this is and by the way sons it's never a bad idea to honor your father tell some stories about his life to people you don't know it's a great way to carry on the family tradition and it's a great way to really move your dad and now let's return to Denny Tedesco while my father struggled to find work playing guitar he had to make ends meet working in a warehouse He always said it was the best job he ever had. He hated it so much, it made him practice every day. I was told by two guys, before we left, he's never going to make it. So after seven months of struggling here, Daddy wanted to go back. And I said, there's no way, because I wasn't giving in to those two guys. (laughs) And that's what Dad said, my stubborn Sicilian wife. In fact, uh, my wife was behind me 100%, like all the time I work, and she's, it was, you'd swear she was working. She took the calls, she didn't, never complained. Mm-hmm. I would come in at 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock, I'd see my kids whenever. My mm-hmm. wife accepted it, this was our living. Mm-hmm. Our whole family took it exactly that way. Every once in a while, a musician's wife would come and complain to her, and she'd talk to them. She'd say, well, look, that's his living. I was very jealous of the guitar when we were first dating and got engaged. And he paid a lot more attention to the guitar, I felt. So I gave him an ultimatum, it's me or the guitar. And he said, honey, the guitar doesn't have legs, you do. (laughs) He got so upset with him, I took my ring and I threw it at him. (laughs) Then I went looking for it. So my father, who was a gambler, drove cross-country with his family. With very little money in their pockets, it was the greatest gamble of his life that paid off. Many of the other musicians that became known as Wrecking Crew were Hal Blaine, Earl Palmer, Jim Gordon on drums, Don Randy, Leon Russell, Hal Delory, Larry Necto on piano. On bass were Joe Osborne, Ray Pullman, Carol Kay, Lyle Ritz, and other guitarists that sat alongside my father included Glenn Campbell, Bill Pittman, Barney Kessel, Lou Morrell, Billy Strange, and many others. The Wrecking Crew wasn't a band per se. Each individual was hired as individuals. Here is Hal Blaine, Tommy Tedesco, and the engineers from Gold Star, Larry Levine, Dave Gold, and Stan Ross, talking about the genesis of the name. You know, all the guys that had been in the studios, God bless them all, for 20, 30 years, they all wore the blue blazers, the neckties, and there was no talking, no smoking, and no nothing. And we came in there with Levi's and T-shirts, smoking cigarettes, whatever, we were 
And the older guys were saying, they're going to wreck the business. You know, they are going to yeah, wreck the music business. You didn't have the respect that the older guys had. Remember the older oh, studio players, Barney yeah. Kessels and the Lloyd Elliotts, all these people? Yeah. Well, that's exactly. how that whole Wrecking exactly. Crew thing came in. Even though the term The Wrecking Crew gained popularity with rock historians, many of these musicians never heard the term until years later. There were a few reasons the older guys were putting it down. Remember, many of the established studio musicians were from the old school big bands, and they were busy working in lucrative careers in soundtracks. When the labels started pushing some of the younger acts, they would create demos first. Now, the older musicians wanted to take a chance on taking over a demo session because it was illegal in the views of the musician union. Why take a chance when you're working on a movie for a three-hour gig that paid less? But for some of the younger guys, it was an opportunity to get involved with new producers and new artists. Once these guys became so in demand, from that point on, most of the recordings became legit union dates. One of the producers who hired these guys was Phil Spector when he moved back to the West Coast. That seems to be the anchor that changed so much for the musicians as well as the music scene. Here are the voices of Hal Blaine, Carol Kay, Plaz Johnson, and Cher talking about Phil Spector. Hello, let's go. Let's make one more, huh? The wall of sound was the gold star echo chamber. Well, it was wall to wall musicians, first of all. Yeah, that's Most people use the four piece rhythm section, he had four guitars, or six, or seven. There were four pianos always, one upright bass, one fender bass. I mean, it was only one drums, usually. Fifteen people playing percussion instruments. In a very small room. Yeah. Not a small room, but an average room. And yeah. a huge yeah. echo chamber that Gold Star was famous for. Ceramic. That was the wall of Ceramic walls. <laughs> You know, Philip was walking in a different universe than everybody else, and so in his mind, it was all him, you know, and the guys were just some sort of an extension of what he couldn't do. Phil loved jazz guitars, so in the guitar section, he would have my father, Barney Kessel, Bill Pittman, Carol Kay, Howard Roberts, and a few others. Phil could be hard to get along with for many, but my father seemed to be able to deal with him in his own way. Here's my father talking about his first time working with Phil. Because the first time I've been hearing Phil Spector's name with all the guys, I didn't know anything about him. All I know is every word for him. So I went on this job. It was like group therapy. Uh, yeah, and all of a sudden, <laughs> I worked for about a half hour, an hour. There was no break, was a little long. Finally, he says, hey, when do, we, you know, when do you take a break here? Everybody looked at me like I'm nuts, saying this to <laughs> Phil. You know, I'm looking at Phil, when do we take a break here? Yeah, when he says, when I'm in New York, Kenny Brown never asked for, uh, you know, time. I said, oh, you're starting that New York sh**. Yes, <laughs> well, that's all. That's you all. Know. You were so, his friend for life. Well, then, you know, yeah. But it was real funny. <laughs> like, I was the only one that ever must have talked to him like this. Yeah. You know, ever. Yeah. So after that, he said, okay, take a break. Yeah. And the next thing you know, I was like a friend of his. I was doing, he says, you want to go out for coffee? Yeah. He never asked nobody for coffee. And mm -hmm. I'm going with him and his bodyguard. Here is a telegram that Phil sent my father in the mid-60s when Phil traveled to New York. I was in my New York hotel room changing channels when I came across the Lawrence Welk show. And what do I see? 
two beady Sicilian eyes in the band. What is a hip Hollywood guitar player doing on the Lawrence Welk show? My father turned around and sent a telegram back. His response was, What is a hip Hollywood producer watching Lawrence Welk for? The gravy train was moving fast and he didn't turn anything down. Many times, if a new band was going into the studio, the producer would still use these session musicians. They usually weren't allowed to play on the album because studio time was expensive and, and the producers had to make sure that they could get in and get out with the recording. Now, recording technology in the early 60s didn't allow for mistakes. If you had 10 to 15 players in a room, they all had to nail their parts. There were no computers helping you punch in. If you made a mistake, they would just start from the beginning and go for it. Glenn Campbell described it like this. He said, it was like playing with Michael Jordan, but everybody in the room was a Michael Jordan. One of these groups that had their instruments stripped from them at the door were the Birds, when they recorded Mr. Tambourine Man. Here's Roger McGuinn telling us the story. Terry Melcher wanted to use session musicians for Mr. Tambourine Man. I'd been a studio musician in New York prior to being in the Birds, so uh, they let me play on it. So my feeling was, great, I get to play with this great band, the Wrecking Crew. Of course, the other guys, David Crosby and, and Michael Clark and Chris Hillman, were livid. They hated the idea because they didn't get to play on their own record. We got a number one hit with it right off the bat, but we knocked out two tracks in one three-hour session. To compare that with what happened when the rest of the band got to play, it took us 77 takes to get the band track for Turn, Turn, Turn. Here's Carol Kay and my father. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. Here's the way that the beat goes on, sound when we first heard it. La di da da da. Da 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 da. Da 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 I said, uh-oh, we need to pull a rabbit out of a hat for this one. You know, it was our job to come up with riffs and stuff. So about the third line I came up with was. And Sonny loved it, and he gave it to Bob West, the bass player, to play it, and, and both of us are playing it throughout the tune. And without a good bass line, the tune doesn't pop, you know, it doesn't snap, you know, like a big hit record. The beat goes on. I've always said, they put notes on paper. The they put notes on paper. But that's not music. You make the music. It, what do you do with the notes? Right. What do you do with the charts? What do Absolutely. you do with the chords? I'll never forget working with Gary Luce and his Playboys doing all the oh, uh, record. Yeah. Sure. And I'll never forget I had one tr real, real hot lick on this one record. The Spanish stuff all over the place. Guess you could say my love was blind. And finally, uh, his guitar player come up to me, he says, oh, you drove me crazy with that thing. First of all, I can't play it, so I don't play it. And then everybody comes up to be complimenting me on what I did on the thing. I said, well, just take the compliments and forget it. And you're listening to Denny Tedesco celebrating and honoring his father, as we do here on this special Father's Day celebration. More of Tommy Tedesco's story brought to us by his son, Denny, here on Our American Story.
And we continue with our American stories and Denny Tedesco's story of his father, guitarist Tommy Tedesco. Here's Wrecking Crew bassist Carol Kay to continue with this remarkable story. We learned how to play rock and roll right there on the job. Hey, you know, if they want this, I can do it. <laughs> you know, that's Latin, that's Latin music. That's nothing, you know. That all day, day long. Here's producer Bowens Howe, Glenn Campbell, Brian Wilson, Hal Blaine, Earl Palmer, and Dick Clark. These are the guys that played on Windy and Never My Love and Everything That Touches You and all the things that were in those those two albums that I did with them. Those are all those those studio musicians. It's Hal Joe, Larry, Tommy, and and those guys, I wanted to put their names on the back of the album when it was finished. And they wouldn't let me because they said, well, we don't want those kids out there that buy our records to know that we didn't play on the record. I went out and took Brian's place with the Beach Boys. And I can understand uh, probably why Brian had studio guys come in because there's a lot of them fight like cats and dogs, man. Rather than Brian to go through the hassle to get the tracks, he would hire the rhythm section to come in and do the tracks. Or well, the guys, well, they at first they were a little jealous, you know what I mean? But I explained to him, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to get the best I can get for the group. And they go, well, well we, I can understand your point, Brian, you know? So we uh, went ahead and did it, and uh, sure enough, the guys liked it. I mean, that's one of the most asked questions. Well, didn't Dennis get mad? Wasn't he mad because you were doing the Beach Boys records? Dennis did not have the studio chops that we had, yeah. you know. Right. The proof of the pudding is that Dennis called me to do his album when Dennis did his solo album. I played the drums uh, on it. A lot of times, the guys would be sitting around the studio, we didn't know that there were guys in the band. The guitar players that were in these various groups, when they realized guys like Tommy Tedesco was going to be playing, they wanted to sit around and watch. And the drummers would want to sit around and watch myself or Al. They were there like more or less they were learning. You know, it would be something that I'd like to see too if it had been the other way around. Nobody cared. All they wanted was the product. They just wanted the name and the sales. Who created it? That was incidental. My father would say there are only four reasons to take a gig. For the money, for the connections, for the experience, or just for fun. I got to tell you a story about your dad. We were in Western Studio 3 there, and uh, Jan Barry, Jan and Dean, he counted the song. Everybody ready? Yeah, okay. Tedesco started playing. And uh, Jan said, stop, wait. And he went over and looked, and he said, Tedesco, what are you doing? <laughs> he, Tommy, the music was upside down, and Tommy was reading it backwards. Now, that's a true story, but you talk about getting a laugh out of it. Tommy was a cut-up. A session or a recording date, as they called it, would be three hours long. Now the musicians would go to work many times not knowing what they were recording or whom they were recording with. Most of the time the music was just written out, but many times they would have to come up with ideas that worked for a song. In 1968, Jimmy Webb gave my father a charm modeled like a tiny Grammy Award as a thank you gift. My father asked, what is this for? Jimmy told him it was for winning the Grammy for Up, Up and Away with the Fifth Dimension. My father didn't even realize he was on the track. 
Now you have to realize when they went to work, they were given sheet music and then they would just start playing. The songs weren't hits yet, just another tune. Many times they would just record tracks and the vocals would be laid in later. If you look at my father's workbooks from the 60s, he was working three to four recordings a day. Now the union allowed them to record only three to four songs per three hours, so you can imagine the amount of music they were given. So to remember what was recorded the week before could be very difficult. Now many people assume it was like one big hootenanny and jam session at my house growing up. It was actually just the opposite. I never saw my father pick up his guitar to practice or play at home until the 70s when he was doing his own jazz records. The last thing he wanted to do was to play or even listen to music when he came home. He didn't need to practice. He was working 12 hours a day. I knew my father went to work playing guitar, but I never comprehended how different that was to other kids' dads and moms. Other friends' dads went to work with hammers and saws in their trucks. In my dad's trunk, it was packed with a Fender Telecaster, steel string acoustic, a classical, a mandolin, a banjo, a 12-string, and an amp. A trick my father would use when it came to getting all those oddball guitar gigs was listing himself on multiple guitar sections in the union book. If a composer asked his contractor to see who played Bella Laika or Bazooki, they would look into the union book and see many unknown Greek and Russian names, and then they come across Tedesco. Now, my father did play all those instruments. The difference was he tuned every one of them like a guitar. If you played more than one guitar on a session, you were paid more. It was called doubling. The first guitar was 100%, the second 50%, and the others were 25% of the session rate. One day, my father was recording the show The Love Boat, which was traveling through the Mediterranean. So he was in hog heaven working with various guitars. One of the violinists in the orchestra called out sarcastically to Tommy, Tommy, do you even know the names of those instruments? He stood up and picked each one up and proudly said, yep, 100%, 50%, 25%, and so on. Here's my father at a seminar in 1983 at Musicians Institute talking about Spanish guitar. Let me give you what I call the creative studio guitar player. About a year ago, I got the call to do a John Denver special. It was John Denver in Mexico, and they wanted some, he was on a fishing vessel, and they wanted some Mexican music, so I give him this. Charlie's Angels, they were in Puerto Rico. They wanted Puerto Rico music, so I gave them this. <laughs> Starsky and Hutch was in a big revolt in Bolivia, I want to show They wanted Bolivian music. The record industry started to change in the late 1960s. Technology changed which allowed more tracks which gave a lot more leeway for producing. Bands were self-sufficient and soon it was about the singer-songwriter era. The artists had more to say in the production of the music and many times they brought their own players. But in the 1970s came around, many of the Wrecking Crew players went in different directions. Some went on the road with various artists and groups, and some went into teaching. My father's career was extended well into the 80s, working on television and film scores. He was already known for his reading skills. In musician terms, he could read fly sh Someone asked him in an interview a few years before he passed, what piece of music would you want to be remembered for? 
Sure, he played on some iconic guitar leads like Batman theme. Green Acres. Bonanza. And worked with everyone from Frank Sinatra and Elvis to the Beach Boys and the Mamas and Papas. But many times, any of the other eight guitar players could have recorded the same pieces. But what he was most proud of was some of the films he worked on with the great composers. John Williams, James Horner, Jerry Goldsmith, Bill Conti, Henry Mancini, and others. Many times, John Williams or James Horner would put a hold on him a couple months in advance. That's when he knew he made it. They were booking Tommy Tedesco and not just a guitar player. He was in his element, hard reading and Spanish guitar, which he loved. And you're listening to Denny Tedesco telling the remarkable story of his dad, honoring his dad here on Father's Day. And we thank Denny for doing all this work. Check out the DVD and other Wrecking Crew items like CDs, books, and other merchandise at WreckingCrewFilm.com and use the discount code AmericanStory. That's discount code AmericanStory at WreckingCrewFilm.com. Watch this documentary, folks. It is American music from 1960 to 1980 and a lot of stories you didn't get to hear here. Now let's return to Denny Tedesco for this final installment of this remarkable tribute. He used to say, I play for smiles. If a leader or the artist is smiling, I'm doing my job. I might play something I think is better suited, but in the end, if he isn't smiling, I better think of something else. Father used to say there's music and then there's the music business. Sometimes they mix, but not always. He said he was the luckiest guy in the world. He never thought he'd make a living at his instrument. He always felt you're a part of a minority as a working musician. And then he became part of a smaller minority, making a living as a session musician. When he was asked if he should have been paid more for his contributions, he would say, I worked on hundreds of hits, but I worked on thousands of bombs. So I never gave the guy that had the bomb his money back. So it all worked out. In 1993, my father had a stroke that basically ended his career as a guitar player. It was devastating. He survived and he came back, but his right hand wasn't the same. He still picked up the guitar, but he would never record again. The last movie he worked on was Schindler's List. In 1996, my father was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. They gave him less than a year. We were stunned as a family, but not surprised. My dad had quit smoking in 1980, but my father smoked three packs a day. He didn't really drink and he hated drugs. He wasn't philosophically opposed if others participated, but he never liked being out of control or not mentally sharp. But he had his vices. They were the cigarettes, the pasta, the coffee, and the gambling. Many times he could do all four at the same time. Before this diagnosis, I played around with the idea to tell the story about the musicians of the 60s. So when my dad was diagnosed, I realized if I didn't make a move quickly, I would never have the chance to tell that story. At this point in my life, I was working on IMAX films as a grip coordinator. I wasn't a director, but I knew my friends and my wife Susie, who was a producer, would be there to support my dream of telling the story. Now, the first day of shooting, I brought together drummer Hal Blaine, bassist Carol Kay, saxophone player Plaz Johnson, and my dad. 
It was the first time probably in 25 years that all four had been in the room together. I was shooting 16mm film and I had two cameras on two dollies constantly circling. I was in heaven. They sat at the round table and they just started talking. I would throw out a couple of questions and they would just go from there. You have to realize the only time I really ever saw my father's friends were at poker games, golf games or parties. I never went to work with my dad. I asked my mom if she had gone to any of the sessions or club dates and she said, Dad didn't like that. A plumber doesn't take his wife to work, he would say. And he's right. He was 110% focused on the job and I got that. So when I brought the four of these characters together, it was magic. The stories, the laughter, the teasing, the joking was amazing. It was still early in my father's disease, so he still had a lot of energy and spunk. It played out exactly like I envisioned it that day. One of the boys, one of the boys. One of the guys, yeah. If sexual harassment suits were in there, she'd be seven millionaires <laughs> right now. After what we put her through, she'd have all the lawyers working for her against us. I don't think ever, anyone ever really felt that she was a woman woman, and I don't mean that detrimentally. No, we were, we were musicians. Yeah. Everything was music, music really. Yeah. Worse than that would have been shutting her out and not sharing the camaraderie. People ask me all the time about being a woman in the man's world. I felt equal with the rest of the guys, and they felt it too. Sometimes they got a little testy. They say, oh, you play good for a girl, Carol. Yeah, and you play good for a guy too. I love musicians and the, the humor and the way that they play, and they all knew that. And I think it was like a sister, having a sister there. Dad passed a few months later. He never got to see one minute of the film. After he passed, I continued interviewing anyone that I was able to get to. The hardest part in making a documentary is getting past the gatekeepers. The gatekeeper's job is to stop folks like me. I'm asking them to give me 30 minutes to an hour of an interview. Now that's a dream, by the way. To sit down and let me ask them questions for no money. But if I could get past the gatekeeper and get to the artist through the back door, I knew I had a chance of major interviews. So you have to realize that these major stars like Cher, Brian Wilson, and others were only kids when they were working with my father and his friends. So they looked up to the musicians, nothing but fond memories. People always ask me if I received any financial help from others in the making of the film. Other than family, I say no. Uh, but I did actually get help from Wells Fargo, Countrywide, American Express, P of A, and other financial institutions who were more than willing to give me credit cards and refis. Well, that turned into a disaster. Soon the market crashed and I had a load of debt with nothing to show for it but a bunch of interviews. I don't recommend making any film this way. Now, there were all kinds of ideas how to trim the budget. People who hadn't seen the film came up with ideas that started from the practical to the absurd. Some would say just use less songs. Use 20 instead of 110. You can do that with other groups of musicians to tell the story. If you hear six Motown songs, you know instantly the thread. But what does the Beach Boys, Frank Sinatra, The Birds, Fit Dimension, Sam Cooke, and the Chipmunks have in common? Some of the same musicians. So you need to show the quantity of music that was coming out of L.A. at the time. As I say, I had to show quantity, not necessarily quality. At this point, my wife Susie was concerned we made the most expensive home movie ever. And that's where it was in 2006. So we had to go for it. We hired an editor, producer, Claire Scanlon, to come in and help us put the film together. Claire and I cut the first 30 minutes together and showed it to our friend Grady Cooper, who looked at it and made a very stinging comment. His comment was, hey, it's, it's good, but why are you making this story? What I just saw in this cut, any of us could do this. 
What he meant was I wasn't taking advantage of something I was avoiding, the connection to the film, my father. And I was avoiding that fact. My ego was getting to me. I wanted to be known as the director, not the son of the subject. I finally gave in and it changed everything from that point on. Finally, in 2014, I paid everyone off and was finally picked up by Magnolia Pictures. It screened in theaters around the world and was on Netflix and continues to play on Hulu, YouTube, and other platforms. Someone asked me if I learned anything about my father in the making of this. While many stories I heard sometimes sounded like folklore, musicians would always describe a recording as if it was like a legendary World Series game. With an orchestra playing and my father had the lead, he would play a hard piece of music as if he owned it and wrote it himself. It made me very proud. But one of my favorite stories I would like to leave you with says it all. This came from one of the greatest bass players in the world, Chuck Rainey. A few years after my father passed, I went to interview Chuck who told me this story. I had never heard it before. We're at Fox recording the music for these four segments of MASH. In one of the titles, he wrote something in the, the ledger lines on the bass clef which has always been somewhat of my weakness. So we start recording it, we get to this part, and I make a mistake. I flub it. Tommy goes. Now I knew who he was. Wow, I'm glad that somebody else made a mistake rather than me. Run it back, and they say, Tommy, you all right? Tommy said, he said And he was Tommy Tedesco. So I said, somebody else had a problem with this. Run the tape back, start it again, we get to the same place and I make a mistake. Again, on this particular part, and Tommy goes. And so the producer says, Tommy, all right? He says, it's okay. And I'm going, Phew. And he turns to me and he says, that's the last time. And I realize that he's doing me a favor. He's hearing me mess it up. He did this twice and put it on him. And so on the break, we go to the break room and he says, man, I'm, I'm Tedesco, Tom, Tom Tedesco. He says, you know, it's great to work with you. I heard a lot about you. And he says, don't get scared. He says, fear does that. And like, thanks for saying me. He said, no problem at all, man. No problem at all. You know, you're a good player. You're here for a reason. Because it's a first call band. You know, you're here for a reason. And I remember I got my car going back home. I said, what a nice gesture from a real nice guy to do that for me. You know, because I've seen other people really get come down hard on other musicians, especially if they were new. But it's just so kind, the way he went. I know it's Father's Day, and for many, it can bring up all kinds of emotions. I realize that I'm very lucky. I had a great relationship with my dad. Sometimes you wouldn't think so. We would argue all the time. Not sure about what, but we both knew how to push each other's buttons. But as soon as he was diagnosed with cancer, we never argued again. Just a few weeks before he passed away, he said to me, you know, the stroke came at the right time in my life. I knew exactly what he meant. The phone had stopped ringing and his day as the LA session king came to an end. But now he had an excuse of why the phone didn't ring and it wasn't something that he had control over. Now, if I learned anything from my father, it was to always give more than you take. I mean, he loved his family and friends and he would always help the younger guitar players knowing it was just a matter of time before they would take his place, just like he took someone else's place 40 years earlier. Happy Father's Day. Miss you, Dad. And a special thanks to Denny Tedesco for that beautiful story honoring his father, Tommy Tedesco. Check out the DVD and other Wrecking Crew items like CDs, books, 
and other merchandise at WreckingCrewFilm.com and use the discount code AmericanStory. That's discount code AmericanStory at WreckingCrewFilm.com. By the way, as he put it, what turned into a, the most expensive home movie ever made to this remarkable film on Magnolia Pictures, Netflix, and available online is the insight that he needed to do a movie as a son and not as some auteur or some artist. And it changed everything. And my goodness, to have a dad like this, there are two kinds of dads, folks, and I'll say it over and over again. The dad who gets a documentary or a story like this from a son and the dad who doesn't. This is Our American Stories. Stories. 